we're continuing in Matthew uh, chapter 13. In this chapter, uh, Jesus has shifted his teaching style. Uh, is, is, the nation of Israel has, in many regards, according to Matthew, has rejected the Messiah, and Jesus' teaching style adjusts. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower, uh, where the seed went out, all good seed. It went into four different types of soil. Um, Jesus said that that was... Um, that that parable is the key to understanding all of the other parables. Today, the parables get a little bit more difficult. Um, this has been a wrestling match for me trying to prepare. Um, so today, we're covering six parables. Um, they're not all as intense, but, but, but we'll get into it. So let's pray, and then we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that as we study Matthew chapter 13... Lord, as we go through your word, line by line, verse by verse, Lord, we, we stumble across some passages that are, that are difficult, and, and this section in particular deals with um, the, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, speak to us, Lord, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would give us understanding, uh, Lord, guard us from error in our, um, in our studying of the word. Father, I pray that uh, as we look at these these parables uh, that give snapshots, pictures of the kingdom of heaven as Jesus is teaching his disciples. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to help us uh, to see applications, to see how it applies to us, Lord. Uh, Lord, we look to you uh, for wisdom and understanding, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. I am not going to read the whole passage, um, just a few verses here. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow them both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest... I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is a smaller this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And Father, we thank you for your word. We turn to you and we ask you to help us, Lord. Uh, Father, I pray that you would encourage us where we are, uh, Lord, that you would help us to understand um, 
just a snapshot, Lord, a, 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 a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven that we would have understanding for how it applies to us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so they say a picture is worth a thousand words. When Jesus spoke, this is prior to the iPhone, prior to cameras, prior to anything. They could draw pictures, but, but he gives this word picture. There's a number of word pictures um, that he begins to use through parables. Um, back in uh, verse, where was it, 13 verse 10, the disciples came and they asked him, and they said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And, and Jesus answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And so there, a, a mystery is something that hasn't been necessarily revealed, that there hasn't been full understanding. And Jesus begins to explain that he's, he's teaching through parables to help his followers understand a, a glimpse of, of what the kingdom of heaven looks like what, so that they can begin their learning process. Um, th- this has been a terribly difficult section and not a section I would have chosen if I'm just kind of like picking every week sections I'd go through. This is not one I would land on necessarily and sort of go, oh, let's cover this chapter. This will be a lot of fun. Uh, there are six parables that we're going to cover. Uh, the sort of the bookends of the parables, um, they, they come with an interpretation by Jesus. Jesus explains them to the disciples. Unfortunately, the middle four, there's, there's these four small, short parables that no instruction is given anywhere in the New Testament. And so there's, uh, it leaves room for, for variables and interpretation. And there are many, many scholars on, that I like, greatly respect who love the Lord, who have interpreted it one way, that another interprets it another way, that sort of seems to be at conflict with the other guy. And so I think that there's room. So I will navigate these with very open hands. Um, I think that there is a definitely a lesson in here for us to learn. Um, it begins here, verse 34. I'm, gonna, I'm taking it sort of out of order, out of whack, so just pay attention, and I will help you figure out where we are. Uh, as, we, as we look at the parables in this section, Matthew says all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill which was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So the first thing I want to point out is that Matthew, who is writing his gospel with the, the, the Jews primarily in, in mind, he quotes the Old Testament all throughout his gospel more than any other gospel writer. And the reason is his audience is, is to the Jewish people, they have the foundation of the Old Testament. And if you are going to present the Messiah to them, you better be able to authenticate and verify your message with Scripture. And so Matthew, again, plugs in here. You know, Jesus is speaking in parables because as he speaks, this was prophesied long ago that the Messiah would come and speak in parables. Uh, the, the second reason that we see, or the second and third reason, depending on how you one account um, that Jesus used parables was back in verse 10 and 11. Uh, he informed the disciples that he spoke in terribles, uh, terribles, uh, parables for two reasons. The, the first reason is that parables would conceal the meaning of those 
who were going against Jesus. He, he would not bring more illumination to them. Uh, the, the immediate context is the scribes and the Pharisees are coming after Jesus. They've rejected him. And so his teaching shifts from, from the, the plain and simple to the, to the concealed of it that they no longer are going to receive uh, further information. And at the same time, to those who are following Jesus, the parables, which literally means uh, um, to cast alongside something. It's the idea of taking a concrete um, item, laying it alongside an abstract item, and in the process, the abstract item becomes more clear. And so to those who are following after Jesus, parables have exactly the opposite reaction as unbelievers. They they actually serve to illuminate a a meaning, to illuminate a spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to convey to them. Uh, Over and over and over again, I'm looking through this and I'm really, I've been struggling all week until last night. I know Dave texted me last night about 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock. And he's like, hey, man, I'm still, I'm, I'm praying for you. How's the sermon prep coming? I said, this is one that's, we're going to work out the kinks tomorrow, Sunday morning, you know, because uh, I understand what it's saying. And the big question is my, you know, my, my rebellious little kid that hated going to church. The one question I try to answer every week is, so what? <laughs> what does this matter? This is a difficult question. This is this one. The so what? The thing that I've um, that's that that's sort of been placed on my heart is uh, for those of us who are not believers, um, there there's some severe warnings concerning the end, concerning our destination. Um, the so what of this? There's there's some concerns to those of us who are believers to question: Am I wheat? Am I tear? How am I living my life? Like how how faithful am I to the word? Um, the other so what is Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, we're told here by Paul, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved, Brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And so here Paul tells us that those of us who are followers of Christ, that we actually hold a dual citizenship, that while we find ourselves in this earth, maybe uh, citizens of the United States, Paul, citizens of Rome, uh, citizens of wherever, um, in Christ, our king is not of this world. And and these kingdom parables, the, the, the mystery is beginning to sort of unravel for us, or, or not unravel, but uh, being disclosed to us that the mystery is becoming clear. Um, for, for while we're here on earth, regardless of what our citizenship is, um, our true hearts, our true values are that of the king, which the kingdom is not there. So this, this idea that the kingdom is sort of being uh, born in the hearts of the believers uh, at one sense is true, but there's also this literal coming that, that Jesus' his first coming, he came, but when he comes on his second advent, the second coming of Christ, he's going to inaugurate his kingdom, and, and things are going to be different there. So we as followers of Christ, we, we tend to play by a different set of rules. We, we want to live by the rules of the king in heaven. So I think that that matters. Okay. <clears throat> So I looked at verses 34 and 35. 
Um, as we move into 36, the reason I'm moving into 36 is because at 36, he begins to explain the parable that we read in verses 24 through 30, or yeah, 24 through 30. Um, Jesus tells this parable, the, the pictures that they're still out there. Um, his, he's, he's been talking to his disciples. He explained to them the parable of the good soil or the, ver- the four types of soil ending with the good soil. Then he transitions and he talks about um, the, this, this farmer who begins to sow good seed in his, in his field. Um, we have this perfect illustration down here at Colgate and Valley Center Road. We see all of the, the, the sprouts are starting to come up. It would have been less organized in their day because they didn't have rows. They just sort of scattered. But the idea is, as we look down at this field, the farmer had gone out, he'd thrown good seed, and he sowed good seed. And then as the, the ground began to sprout the plants, and as the plants began, began to develop the heads of wheat, at that point, the workers of the field are like, we have a problem. Because half of the plants are wheat, and the other half are not wheat. They believe that this was a seed called darnel um, that was identical to wheat up until the point to where the head of wheat began to sprout. And so now the plants have began to develop. They're still young. And the workers go to the owner and say, didn't you plant good seed? He's like, of course I planted good seed. He's like, well, you got bad seed out there. He said, well, there must, my enemy must have come. And my enemy must have followed behind me and scattered this bad seed amongst my good seed. And the worker said, well, do you want us to go out and do some, do some weeding? We can pull out the bad seed. And the owner says, don't do that because if you pull out the, if you pull out the bad stuff, you're going to actually rip out the good stuff and both will be destroyed. So just go ahead and let them both mature together. And at the end, we'll, when we harvest the wheat, we'll harvest them separately. We'll destroy the one and the other will be used for the good crop. So that was, that was the parable. And now we come to verse 36, after Matthew told us why Jesus has been teaching in parables, and we're told that he left the crowds and went into the house. If we were to go back to 13 verse 1, we see there that that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. So the thought is that he he left this house, he goes down by the sea, he does all of this teaching, now he's back at the house, possibly that same house, we don't really know. He's back in the house, and at this point his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed, this is the son of man. So in that story, there's the owner who's going out sowing the good seed. Jesus says, the man in that story, that's me. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Okay, how much do I want to cover here? Uh, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So Jesus sort of connects this picture of this harvester that goes out, and he he explains who each of the players are in the story. He says, there's a good man, that's me. The the seed, that's, that's really his disciples, those who are following. Jesus has now divided all people into two categories. There are those who... Um, are following him, and those who are the, the wicked and evil generation, those who do not know him. His teaching at this point is to those who are following him. It's to help them understand. To those who are, have rejected him and are not following him, he's concealing his message to them. 
And he says, as the seed goes out, that's, that, those are my children, my sons. Now, the, the seed, the bad seed that's been sown, that's been sown by the devil. And those are his children who are following after him. And as the, the, the wheat and tares are harvesting, eventually at the end when they're both harvested, Jesus says, those doing the harvesting in this, in this word picture, th- those are angels. And it's sort of rep- symbolic of, of the end days, the last day. So Jesus is going from his sort of his first, his, his coming to earth, basically to his second coming. As we enter into the millennial kingdom, Jesus comes back and, and the idea is this is when that harvesting is happening, um, entering into the, 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 the literal kingdom that is described in Revelation. See, I'm still trying to sort out where I want to go next. This is like a... <clears throat> so that's the picture of... of, of, of uh... Now, verse 40 through 43, he's going to sort of explain it. But I want to go back to verse 31 through 33... Because if I don't do that, I think I'm going to skip over these two parables. And I think that these two parables, we have to sort of keep in our minds as we look at the interpretation, the so what that Jesus gives. Um, So verse 31, we read this. And he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And And this is the smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So we have this parable. Nowhere is this parable explained by Jesus. Um, th- this is all we get on this parable. So we're left to sort of the immediate context, trying to figure out what's it mean, what's it saying. I can go a few different ways. This is where I'm real. I'm not going fight, to fight and die over the interpretation of this. Um, there's a couple different views. Um, first, let's kind of go with the obvious observations of this text. So this next parable, it's still dealing with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, uh, back in verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And so these parables are, are, are serving to show the disciples, uh, to give them a, an understanding, a glimpse of, of the kingdom of heaven. So we know that each of these parables are, the, the purpose is to highlight, to put color, to put meat, flesh on the bones um, concerning the kingdom of heaven. And he says, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And, and this is smaller than all the other seeds. I want to pause for you. So if you if you start going and you start researching small, like we all have our, our good friend, Mr. Google or Mrs. Google, whoever, you, you know, whoever Google is to you. Um, we we if we were to Google, what are the smallest seeds in the world? Mustard seed is not going to come up as the smallest seed in the in the world. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying. We have to go back in context for them the seeds that they used in farming, the, the, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that they, they used in, in, their, 
in their little, uh, you know, what do you call those things, those green vegetable-ish things, uh, spices or whatever, you know, like, uh, you know, my, my animals eat them. Uh, herbs, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spices, herbs. So of all of their spices, uh, a mustard seed was just known as the smallest one in, in their setting. He, uh, um, there were many uh, parables that were given by the rabbis, and it was sort of a saying, if you wanted to refer to something really small, it would be referred to as a mustard seed. So don't get all wrapped up in arms and say, oh, Jesus said it's the smallest of all the seeds, and I know that there's like what, a poppy seed that's way smaller than a mustard seed, and so the Bible's filled with inconsistencies, is which liberal scholars will do to this one. That's not at all the point of what he's making. He, 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 so then he says this, this, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And, and it is smaller than the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger uh, than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air and the nest come and nest in its branches. Okay, so we have this little tiny seed. You plop it in. A few weeks goes by. Um, the mustard plant, I, I believe it was like the bearded mustard plant that they used, and it could sprout up to 12 to 15 feet high. Um, it was more like a bush than a tree, but a 15-foot bush is pretty substantial. Um, he says, it grows to be so big that birds can come and sort of nest in its branches. I'm going to hold off on getting to that one. Um, the most obvious, the most basic sort of meaning, he seems to be saying that the kingdom of heaven is something that starts out just super insignificant. It doesn't seem to be uh, anything of mightiness, any, any sort of worth. And if we go back, we hear the inauguration of the kingdom. John the Baptist started by the message of saying, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. He's making way for Jesus the Messiah to come along. So then we have Jesus. Jesus then pulls out his 12 disciples. These guys were untrained men. They were blue-collar guys. They were totally insignificant on the the bigger picture of what was happening uh, religiously or even um, politically in Israel during that time. And so the, the, the picture seems to be, you guys seem like you're nothing. You're little mustard seeds. There's, there's me. I'm going to be killed here in, in a little bit. There's you 12, which are going to take the leading of the church. Um, it, it seems so insignificant. But given time, and if you watch history, and you sort of watch Christendom, how Christianity spread, um, Christianity sort of spread into this, this major world religion. That, um, that Christ is probably, not probably, he is without a doubt the, the most famous person of all human history. Um, and so some would take this and just kind of say, well, this is the kingdom. Like, look at the spread of Christianity over time. Um, you can get going a wrong direction, I think, um, where some over the course of history have said, well, well, this is sort of the implication that... that uh, what we're doing is, our role here is we're bringing a Christian world to this world, and there's going to be world dominance by Christianity. Um, you, you see this by some groups that I would probably put on the outs, like not probably, but, but would put on the outskirts. Uh, if a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking at your door, they're going to try to tell you about this kingdom that's unfolding and the remaking of the world and how this is all happening. Um, if we look historically, um, going back to the Crusades, going back to the Inquisition, going back to these things, the, 
horrific things that were done in the name of Christ that are not at all like what his message was. But there are those who have taken this mustard seed illustration and said, well, this is what it is, that we're sort of, you know, we're making world dominance, turning the world into a Christian place. And I think that's getting off track. Now, when we look at the birds that are resting in these branches, there's some who will say that these mean nothing. these, these, These birds are, it's just to kind of bring the story alive. There are others who will say that the birds are symbolic of of Gentiles now sort of being rested amongst the branches. And then there are others who who say that the birds are sort of a nuisance, that they're... um, that if you if you study birds throughout the Bible, there's there's normally negative connotations to the birds. In the very previous um, parable, the the birds that I mean not the birds, the seeds that fell on the side of the road and they didn't get into the soil. It was the birds that came and ate and destroyed. And so, and and on that interpretation, which seems to fit with the the other four, possibly. is that these birds sort of, as the kingdom of heaven is sort of growing, uh, w- within the followers of Christ, there are going to be those that fall within the banner of Christianity that aren't Christian. Um, that these are nuisances, that these will be destroyed at the end times, that these two groups grow together. Um, in some respects, I, I, I think that we see this um, when you walk into family Christian bookstore and you start circling through the books, uh, <clears throat> I wish we lived in a world where that we as followers of Christ go, oh, it's family Christian bookstore. We can just walk in there and we step in the door and we're safe. Like everything, every book that's on sale in family Christian bookstore that we can just take it and read it and be confident that we're reading sound doctrine. There's a bunch of stuff in Christian bookstores that's not good, that, that doesn't align with Scripture. So that's one thought. We'll move on, verse 33. <clears throat> he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. We know leaven. This is yeast. Um, This one gets a little bit complicated. Uh, leaven throughout the whole scriptures is, is typically symbolic of sin. It, it's, it's virtually referred to a negative light. In fact, this morning I've been sort of working my way through Exodus, and there's sort of the picture where all of the people um, flee from Pharaoh, and it seems like that there was this whole chapter of like getting ready to celebrate Passover, like no leaven in your food. Get all the leaven out of your house. Everything's done away with. This is the Passover that, that, that leaven has sort of often been used as a symbolism for sin, how a little bit of leaven can leaven the, the whole, is it loaf or whatever? The, the idea is that you just put a little bit in there, and before you know it, it spreads like wildfire, and everything is infected. And so you have to take leaven seriously or sin seriously is sort of the point. 
But now when we come to this one, the confusion or the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Huh? So some would say, well, some would say that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which is always bad. But how can how can how can the kingdom of heaven have any sort of sin in it? So it's kind of like ah, that does that doesn't seem to fit. And so the the point that Jesus seems to be making here, or the what he's emphasizing on leaven, is 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 like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three picks until all the flour was leavened. There seems to be this sort of like this growth, how yeast will sort of spread and and anything it touches, it has this implication. So some suggested that they, the idea is that, you know, you could take this two ways. Some would say, well, that with, like following the, the bad birds in the tree, that there's, that, that amongst Christen, Christendom, that there will be wheat and tares sort of commingled, and it's not until the end that this leaven can be dealt with. On the other side of the coin, the more like positive outlook is that the the leaven goes in that the kingdom of God, those who are followers, are like leaven in the world, and 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 there's this aspect of the kingdom, the followers of the king that will that will permeate the world and have an effect for the world. I don't know. I'm not going to spend much time there. So you, whatever you feel comfortable with, I, I'll I'll go with it. I think there are truths on both sides. And now skipping back down. Okay, yeah, I'm going to leave those two parables. So now let's go back to verse 30, uh, to verse 40. Okay, so Jesus had just sort of explained the players in the parables. And then he says in verse 40, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, he who has ears, let him hear. And so Jesus sort of fast forwards to the end. He's, he's explaining that a day is coming that, that prior to the inauguration of his kingdom, that there's going to be this sort of sifting through wheat and tear. Um, that, that there's this understanding that, that, that up to this point, there might be non-believers sort of lumped together with believers. Um, the, I, I say that within the church, this isn't sort of an excuse because we know from the epistles that within the church, there seems to be um, commands to those who profess Christ but are in sin that there's an obligation of the church to sort of to, to deal and to confront in love for, with the aim of restoration. So this isn't just saying, hey, we're just going to go and there, oh, Joe can be over here. There's no Joes in here. Um, uh, Joe can just be sinning and, and the weed and the tares grow together, so we're okay. That's not, that's not, this isn't sort of an excuse like, oh, Jesus is just going to deal with the sin at the end. Um, I, I, I'm not in, in the in this parable. The the field is the world, and so on the other hand of the coin, I, which I kind of think is that the the church is in the world. This, there's no there's nothing in the scripture that tells us that we need to go find a Christian commune and isolate ourselves from the world. Uh, 
uh, the picture seems to be that in this age, God has placed his church, his believers, uh, those who follow the king into the world, that we're supposed to be in the world. We are a light to the world. He's commissioned us as his ambassadors to share the good news. Uh, as the end comes, this day will come when he pulls out the bad from the good. And the bad, they're serious. I mean, we see weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus speaks about hell and eternal punishment um, a, a lot in his message. He speaks on money and hell significantly, like throughout his teaching. And so he gives this, this warning. And this warning is given in love because it's not like he just wants to condemn the world. Jesus didn't uh, um, come to condemn. He came to rescue. But part of being rescued is the sort of the idea and the understanding of how terrible our sin is before the Lord. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. There's this this idea that our sin should be should stop us in our tracks, that we should um, come before the king and bow down and repent and acknowledge him as our Lord. He then moves into two more parables that there's no translation. And there seems to be two different ways, again, in which these, or I should say there's two different ways that these are sort of interpreted. And the interpretation seems to be like exactly the opposite of one another. Um, so verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, so what we know about these, these two parables, so we have the parable of the great pearls, and we have the parable of the treasure that's found in the field. What we know about these two parables is that when they found the item, the, the item was of such great value that it was that it was worth basically abandoning and selling everything that they had so that they can acquire the, the, this, this prize. Um, in looking at the two people in the story, the first one, there's sort of, the man sort of stumbles across it. He finds it on accident. He then buries it in the ground, goes back, makes everything he can do to acquire it. Now, the second guy, he doesn't stumble across it. He's actively searching for a pearl of great value, that, that he knows what he's looking for, he's on this quest. So it would be awesome if we knew exactly who these characters were, if there was a plain uh, description of who, who do we fill into these, these places. So, so one interpretation is that Jesus is the one searching. Um. Or maybe I should start with the other one. Let me search with the other one. <laughs> um, because I'll, I'll be able to explain the other one better, I think. Hopefully. Um, like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding the pearl of great value, he went and sold, okay, that's a pearl. So let's go back to the field, verse 44. Um, like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. From joy over it, he goes and sells all that he had and buys the field. So so one interpretation is that that humanity is the man, is um, 
The idea is that, 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 that we all kind of come to Christ in different ways. Some of us, um, some of us uh, when I came to Christ, I was not looking for Christ at all. Um, it sort of came about that, that, that my life had sort of gotten to a place um, where everything sort of fell apart, and then I had this nagging friend, and sort of the gospel came to me, and then through some resistance, and then, fi- you know, then finally I, I recognized um, the value of what he was presenting to me, and then I gave my life uh, to, to, the, to, to Christ. Um, there, there are other people who I've met who were not like me, who um, very spiritually minded, searching for truth, that they, they, they absolutely are convinced that there's something greater than what science is just telling us, that we're a bunch of uh, amoebas just sort of aimlessly floating around and through a couple explosions, and what we see is what we get, and then once we die, that's all there is. They're like, no, 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 there's got to be more. So they're on this quest, searching. And so on one side of the coin, th- th- this is sort of how it's described, that the, the value is the gospel, the, the valuable item, and that the person searching sort of this description of how people come to the kingdom and discover the king, that there are these two options, two different ways of sort of one, one man stumbles upon the gospel, another man is seeking the gospel, but that the gospel is of great value. Now, those that would disagree with this, and there are people I respect immensely on both sides of this discussion, they would say that Christ is of Christ is the one doing the searching, and the point is, as we're going to take communion today, which we're reminded of, of our sin required that Christ gave all. That that He stepped out of heaven, He came to earth, He lived the perfect life, and that He would make the sacrifice. He gave everything that He had so that we might have this relationship. Uh, those that would disagree with, like, that they would say, like, well, you don't buy the gospel. There's nothing. It's by grace. And so they would say that in these two descriptions, uh, verse 44 is of the whole world. And then when you come to the, par- the parable of the pearl, um, I don't, I mean, I know, a little, I, I, mean, I know how uh, a pearl is formed. It's really... Um, an imperfection, you know, a little piece of sand gets in the clam that really irritates the clam. So then the 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 clam, not is it no oyster, not clams. You know, sorry. I like eating them more than I like get the jewelry from them. So then it secretes this stuff that I don't even know what that's called. It's a big fancy word, and then it keeps secreting stuff over this piece of sand, and eventually an uh, uh, an uh, pearl is formed. Now, to the Jews. They could take or leave a pearl. A pearl was not a big deal to them. Uh, An oyster was an unclean animal. Like this wasn't something that they would eat. And so some have suggested that this is sort of that Jesus is beginning to expand, that that it's Jews and Gentiles. Again, there's there's no explanation given of these four parables that we see in the middle. And then from this, Jesus moves into the dragnet, not the TV show. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into the containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. 
and will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here's this picture of this, this dragnet. So in Israel, you could, in that time, you could fish sort of like, you know, I think there was like fishing pole possibly for one hook, that that wasn't really used. Um, there was a, a, a way for a, one man, one net to sort of, he would go out on the boat, it would be like a circle net. At the edge of the circle, there were weights, and then there would be a long line. And so then he would basically fan out the, the net, it would land in the water, and then as it sank, the weights would then come together and, and capture fish, and then he would pull it up and get, some, um, get, get some, some fish out of it. Now, the other way was this dragnet where it would, it would be like a team. This is commercial fishermen. They basically would throw out the net attached to two different vessels. They would basically, they would drag it, and it would scoop up everything. So they would get Mountain Dew bottles and fish. and Well, they didn't get Mountain Dew bottles, but you get like everything that was possibly could be swiped up, they got it. Then they brought it to the shore, and they said, well, that's trash. That's a terrible fish. I don't want that fish. That's a good fish. And they'd go through this sorting process. And so Jesus, Jesus says that this is what's going to happen in the edge of the age. They're sort of like that the good and bad are sort of scooped up. But then the king is going to do this sorting. And this is, this is worrisome. I, I, um, he says this to them. And I think that the heart is Jesus is trying to get people to respond, that they would turn to him, that they would trust in him for their salvation because we're secure in him. And he looks at his disciples in verse 51 and he says, all these, uh, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Which uh, this just cracks me up. This reminds me of a few years ago. Um, before we went to Mongolia, we knew that we were going to do 24 hours in China to visit um, some missionaries that we support. And Joshua had friends, a friend from Qualcomm that was a, sort of, he worked for Qualcomm, but he also lived in Beijing, and he was a temp, tent maker missionary. And so he had invited Richard and I to go to lunch so that we could, or dinner to, so that we could meet and hang out with one another. And so I made the mistake of asking them about their line of work, um, and they started talking, and I had no clue what they were talking about, like at all. I, I mean, an hour went by, and I'm nodding, going, uh-huh, yeah, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm going, I sure hope they don't ask, like, I hope there's no quiz at the end of this, but I'm just going to keep nodding and saying, uh-huh, mm, oh, that's really interesting, wonderful. Can I get some more iced tea, please? <laughs> kind of like, and then... About the 50-minute mark, they mentioned the word 3G. And I say, ah, 3G. We're talking about cell phones. I know, all, I know about 3G. And they both look at me and they say, you mean you don't have a, you had no clue this whole time what we were talking about. And I was like, oh, man, I just sold myself out. But I was so excited to hear something. I'm like, well, to say that I know what 3G is, I know that on my phone, there's a little thing that says 3G, and then there's bars, so I know it like it's connected to sort of a cell phone tower. And then they just kind of moved on. And, and, uh... But when I read this story, this is sort of what I, I picture. They, they didn't understand the parables. They didn't understand why Jesus, they've, they've gone to him and said, Lord, can you, can you explain it? And really, I find this so encouraging. I... Uh, he says, have you, Jesus says to them, have you understood all these things? They look at him and they're like, yeah, we're good, Jesus. If we were to go on to chapter 15, so chapter 15, um, verse 15, you don't have to turn it. It just says, Peter said to him, explain these parables to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding? So the apostles, when Jesus sort of 
taught and explained um, the parables to them, they were having a difficult... These are great mysteries that Jesus is revealing. Uh, talking with Anna last night about the difficulty of this, she mentioned something that's kind of encouraging to me. I do think that there's a... That, like The four that are uninterpreted, there, there can be beauty there. And, and sometimes, it's, if you write in your Bible... Um, it seems to me that God will use verses one way to encourage you at one season in your life, and then you can go back five years, and you can stumble across the same verse, and it encourages you like in a whole different verse, or in a whole different way. Um, the disciples weren't fully understanding. But when we look at these things, we, 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 learn, we get a glimpse of the kingdom, and Jesus is trying to get us to understand um, the, the kingdom, its value. Um, the hope that we have in following after the king. And after they say yes, in verse 52, Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of the household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. And what he seems to be telling them, he's preparing them to be the leaders of the new church. And he said, if you've been given understanding you're now responsible to what you do with this understanding that there's an obligation, kind of going back to the very first parable, uh, the parable of the sower. As we follow out the great as we follow out Matthew and we come to the great commission, we see that that the Lord has called His church, believers in Christ, to be His ambassadors to the world. And we might not understand every, uh, you know, every little ver every little word and what like what's going on. But I think to that which we do understand, that there's a sense that there's this obligation that we as disciples, if we follow Christ, we have an obligation. You know, we're going we're gonna to take communion. And communion is a time for believers to reflect upon their king, their relationship that we now have with the creator of the universe. We're reminded of what he did for us. You know, it's a cracker and grape juice, and it's, it's symbolic of his broken body and his blood that was shed. And if we're, if we're <clears throat> following out the, the parable of the, you know, the field and the oyster, like if we are interpreting it that way, um, Jesus gave up all. Like he stepped out of heaven. He became flesh. He lived without sin. And then he took on the most brutal and grotesque execution that could possibly be handed down to a person, let alone the creator of the universe. He surrendered all so that our sin might be paid for, that we might have life in him. Maybe take it the other way, that maybe you stumbled upon the cross gospel or you're searching out, maybe you're still searching. Like, I know that from the scriptures overall that, that Christ cared for humanity um, so much that he would do this for us, that he longs for us to not die apart from him, that we would give our lives to him. And so as we take communion today, there's, there's this, this time um, that, that I want us just to sort of, you can bow your head, to take, to take some time just to... Um, to reflect on your own life. Like, are you in Christ? If you're not in Christ, communion is not for you. Um, if, if you want to receive the gift of salvation, it's simply in believing. 
And so we take communion. This is our time that we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. The, the blood is the new covenant that we have life in him. Uh, it's a time for us to pause and to reflect on our own life. First uh, Corinthians 11 also says that as we take communion, we're reminded of the commission that we're to profess his death until he comes again. So just like Jesus told his disciples, we who are his disciples, there is an obligation we've been entrusted with going forward with this message of reconciliation. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, there are some sections that are more difficult to understand than others. Um, When I look at this section, Lord, I see that you are the king and that your kingdom, although it might not seem that impressive uh, right now, we know that you are not done, that you are not finished, that our king will return. Father, there's a lot of different ways that we can go with those parables. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to stay faithful to you, Lord, that we would examine our hearts, our lives, our actions, Lord, that we would honor you with all that we have. Father, we pray that you would help us to prize you above all, Lord, as we take communion today, we, um, we recommit ourselves to you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would, um, Lord, help us um, to be ambassadors for you, Lord, that you would help us to see opportunities to share Christ with others. We thank you, Lord, that salvation is not based on works, that it's by your grace, um, your mercifulness to us, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to love you more and more. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.